Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. Welcome back, Beats by Social Work listeners. We're your hosts, Tiffany and Kristen. We started this podcast to talk about all things transplant and LVAD, left ventricular assist device, social work. We want to bring you information, education, discussions, and connection to dehumanize the world of transplant and LVAD. Today, we continue our series on the family. But as always, we have to start with a quote. Deep inside of us, we know what every family therapist knows. The problems between the parents become the problems within the children. Roger Gold. Mm. Or Google. Oh, that is, you know, well, maybe we should ask Google to see if uh, Google can sound it out for us. That is okay. So last episode, we brought it back to social work basics and began unpacking Bowen's family systems theory. We spoke about triangles, differentiation of self, and we began exploring the nuclear family emotions process, which uh, the ones that we talked about last time were marital conflict and dysfunction in spouse. But there's four of the nuclear family emotional processes, the four basic relationship patterns that can govern where problems develop within a family system. So we talked about the first two and let's start and dive right in to the second two. The first one being impairment of one or more children. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So when this happens, the spouse focuses their anxieties on one or more of the children and worries excessively, usually having an idealized or a negative view. And that lens that they're looking at the child through is how, how it impacts the behavior within the family. But more specifically, the more the parent focuses or parents focus on the child, the more the child then focuses on them. So it's a two-way street. He or she is more reactive than his or her siblings to the parents' attitudes, needs, and expectations. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, and you think about it, bringing it a step further to transplant or LVAD, what happens when the the parent is the one that's sick and they Mm -hmm. also have a child with an impairment? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I look at it in two ways too, because what about those patients that are children of parents that were sick, right? Your, your familial diseases mm-hmm. and genital, mm-hmm. what does that look like? And how did that impact their upbringing to then going through this process themselves? And, or if we are talking about say congenital, talk about, mm-hmm. you know, familial as a whole, it, it can be in any of the organs when they, when they get that diagnosis or they go through that transplant and then they start to worry about what does this mean for my, my child eventually? Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to go through this? And see that two-way street can become enmeshment, right? It can become mm-hmm. so ingrained in one another in the two people that are participating in that, the parent and the child, that it can undercut that differentiation of self or that 
other concept, that second concept we talked about in the family systems theory. How can that child separate their own views, become one within themselves when their parents are so hyper fixated on them to the point of anxiety and usually based on a lens that or a a mold that that child may or may not be able to fit into. So an example that comes to mind is when, when you have, like you mentioned, a chronically ill child and that parent devoted their entire being to becoming the caregiver Mm -hmm. and how that may have impacted those stages of development and that differentiation of self when they were so closely cared for as a child. And then they may be going through, let's say a repeat transplant, or they may have had chronic illness throughout their upbringing. And now they finally need a transplant and looking at how that may have impacted that person's critical decision-making skills or dependence on others. Yeah. Well, I I like what you said there. I think I take it a step to piggyback on that is Mm -hmm. those children that become young adults say they go through the transplant and they become, I don't want to say healthy, but they no longer have that end stage organ failure, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so their whole life, their parents were focused on them and they appreciate that. But what does that look like now? How do they break free from that? I, I, I love the young adult population. And this is a conversation I have often with that population because it can go one of two ways. I mean, looking at that theory, it's saying they internalize the family tensions. So they mm-hmm. notice the things that are happening. They notice the, the parents arguing, the financial struggles, the brother or sister who didn't get to go to their, you know, high school basketball games or this or that because of their illness. And so then now they're on the other side of it and, you know, internalizing that and and working through that. And I think we need to be cognizant as clinicians. It's it's not just over after the transplant. I know we say that all the time, Mm -hmm. but now is when almost the the real work begins because Mm -hmm. those that have dealt with this chronic illness their entire life now have to learn how to be a person with a transplant, not a chronic illness. And especially when the parent adopts the role of caregiver to such an intensity that they impair them from trying to accomplish basic uh, young adult goals. So for example, when you have a young adult who is saying, you know what, I feel healthy and I want to go get a job. I want to go get a job. No, 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 no. You can't go get a job. You're sick. You're sick. You're Mm -hmm. sick. You're sick. You can't go get a job or you can't live on your own or you can't do this. You can't do that. Check go away to school. mm -hmm. Live in the dorms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But you can. So how how did those conversation go for you? Can you give us an example of how you talk or some of the things you may say to a young adult patient that might be dealing with this coming from their parents as the caregiver? Oh yeah. I, I just had a situation over the summer that's like pounding out in my head. I think it's important, and this is one of those areas where it is important to ask to speak with the patient by themselves, right? Yeah. And that might be rare because maybe that's the first time that that's happened, but it's also thinking that might be the first time that the patient has been able to express themselves without fear of judgment from their parents more so, and then from, you know, anything else. So I had an individual and this has happened more than once. So again, I'm generalizing, but Mm -hmm. they met with me one-on-one and I just, I asked the questions. I ask the tough questions of, I start with just, how are you? And I just Mm -hmm. stare at them in in such a way of, it's not, how are you? How are you feeling? It's no, no, no. How are you? How are you adjusting? What comes next? Mm. And then that's when it's, 
I don't know, or I've been wanting this and it kind of starts to come out, but talking with them about, okay, your identity. And I think I've mentioned this in episodes before, but your identity can be multiple things at once. And Mm -hmm. for a chronically ill individual, their identity was being the chronically ill individual in their school, in their town, in their family, in their social settings. I mean, kind of depending on the situation. And so what do you like to do? What have you thought about? What brings you joy? Because sometimes they can't even get out of their own, well, I'm sick. This is how I've always been. This is what mom and dad said. This is what, you know, aunt and uncle said, whatever the case might be. So it's kind of starting with basics, almost thinking of when kids were in school of what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, those questions, what do you want to do now? You have, you have your life ahead of you. And for some of these individuals, they maybe were living life in a manner that they didn't expect to have a long life. They didn't expect to be able to do certain things. So they never really thought about that. So you're kind of helping them with that and talking to them about who are they? That mm-hmm. question that's simple, but so deep. Mm, yeah, it's simple in the in the sense that there's not many words that go into that sentence, but mm-hmm. each one is very, very heavy. Uh, there's right. otherwise nothing simple about that sentence. No. And and it's also realizing that you're not going to answer that question in that session and, and telling them that too. I like to give yeah. homework. And so my homework assignments will be think about the, the things that bring you joy. What do you like to do? What are your coping? What are your hobbies? Let's mm-hmm. start there. And when you think about a year from now, or when you think about when you're quote grown up, what do you think about? <laughs> what comes to mind? Yeah. Or what things come to mind? Because maybe it's more than one. And so that can then help direct all right, well, where do we go in that? You know, where do we go in step one? No, thank you for sharing that example. That's huge because the, you know, we all have a different way of doing things. And that's the whole point is that we're as clinicians can learn from one another and can learn different ways to make ourselves better. And so again, throwing it out to the audience, if you have a young adult population, or if you have, let's say you work in the PD world, mm-hmm. and you can speak to this, mm-hmm. give us an email, give us an example, we would love to share it of those little tips and tricks that we can all as clinicians learn from, especially in this population. Absolutely. And I think that brings us right into the next number four of this mm-hmm. emotional distance, which mm-hmm. is the pattern is consistently associated with others. People distance from each other to reduce the relationship intensity, but risk becoming too isolated. I think we see the same thing in this population. I know working in lung, working in heart, seeing those with cystic fibrosis, seeing those with congenital, they become quote well, and then they go kind of to the wall. They, they, I have my life. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do whatever I want, when I want, because I can. And they go Mm -hmm. completely off the the other side of the spectrum. Yes. And that's a dangerous place too. But Mm -hmm. going to this theory, and then that puts that uh, strain on relationships of the caregiver, caregivee, their guardians, their support systems, you know, even friends that stuck by them, perhaps they're distancing themselves because they want to be out of the chronic illness. They want to be out of that area. Okay, there is a concept that I recently was exposed to called matrescence. Matrescence. Have you ever heard of this? I've not. Tell me more. Okay. I'm so Google matres- as you talk. Yeah. It's literally like if you wrote adolescence and mattress together. 
together. <laughs> That's kind of how it's spelled. Fair. Yeah, but the reason I bring it up and is because I think that there's uh, there's a lot from this particular concept that we could probably learn from and tie into our patient population. So matrescence is a, the psychological stages of development when a woman becomes a mother. It's mm. essentially saying that you should compare becoming a mother to the phase of adolescence, which is where the maternal, mat- the mattress at the beginning of the <laughs> matr- maternal with adolescence. Matrescence. This is just something that I just pulled up off the internet. And of course, I can link it for our listeners. But it states during matrescence, people expect you to be happy while internally you're losing control over the way you look and feel. Mm. And finding your new identity, especially when you're dealing with body image issues, you're dealing with your health, the trying to keep a tiny human alive, and your identity is completely shifted. So you actually, the theory behind it is that you go through an entirely new psychological stage of development similar to adolescence. And are we open to the possibility? Because I'm not, I have nothing to back this up except my own theory and my own opinion. But are we open to the possibility that chronically ill patients or patients that go through an intensive treatment process of any end-stage organ disease go through a similar process? Mm-hmm. Are we open to that possibility? I mean, I am because I've recently been thinking about that, taking it even prior to adolescence. They say that age zero to three is your most impactful years, right? Yeah. Um, the, the things that you go through during that time are have a great impact, whether you want it to or not, for positive and negative, either way, on your outlook, on your attachment styles, things like that, right? Yeah. Well, I look at transplant as a rebirth. And I've always said, you know, year zero to three is your most impressionable years of transplant. You know, year mm. three is where you realize because sometimes the first year you're just trying to figure out how to quote, stay alive, <laughs> right? So yeah. you're not keeping a tiny human, you're keeping yourself yeah. and all your appointments and everything. And then you're, you made it to year one and then you're like, okay, the second shoe going to drop. And so you got that anxiety, that nervousness of going through year two. Are things status quo? Exactly. And so I think that's where the things that happen. And again, I have nothing to back this up either. This is just my own thoughts that I've been thinking lately, especially after reading a book (laughs) that talked about this. Um, But, you know, I have to wonder, is there is there some correlation? Because it is kind of like a rebirth. We talk about it being your second birthday. We talk about it's the day that your life changed. And is it during that time, too? So I don't know. We might be on to something here. Exactly. And as I'm reading further into matrescence, it's it there there's several points that make sense. Like adolescence, it's a transitory period. Being pregnant is like going through puberty all over again. Your hormones go nuts, your hair and skin don't behave, and you develop a new relationship with your body. How is that any different from coming out of a major surgery, being put on immunosuppressant drugs, steroids in particular, hmm. where your mood is going all over the place and then some, you're dealing with sternal precautions if it's cardiothoracic, and you're having to adjust to all those body image issues that go along with that. And mm-hmm. like you said in the previous episode, that this is a family treatment, not just a patient treatment. I mean, and that's why we're talking about the families and relationships from your your family history yeah. and how that impacts who you are as an individual coming into this. But also there's already, we know, such a high opportunity and vulnerability for things to happen to impact relationships of all sorts, parents, children, partners, siblings, friends, all of it. 
And so knowing these things that already may have happened in in an individual's lives or that they struggle with with, within the family dynamics and knowing that it can happen after or knowing that even if they didn't struggle with it before, there's a good opportunity they might struggle after it. And that can take you by a big surprise. And I will say one one last thing about how you you use the analogy of of rebirth and it's you didn't bring home a baby, but you brought home a transplant and you're dealing with you have a second birthday, things like that. I do something similar. And so I I say, you know, it's a lot like bringing home a newborn baby, especially the stress on the caregivers, the stress on the patient you want to do everything right. You try to be regimented, but have you ever heard the complete and total BS phrase of, and any new parent out there can attest to this, any BS phrase of just sleep when the baby sleeps, (laughs) which we know is a total lie. But I do actually bring that up. I say, as a caregiver, you have to rest. You have to. And that doesn't, that so that means you're not hovering over your loved one 24/7. I'm pretty sure they would appreciate it if you did not hover mm-hmm. over them 24/7. So even though it is a total BS phrase, we do have to remind ourselves that we deserve rest too. And so I say it's a lot like bringing home a newborn baby except I'm sorry friend, you don't get the baby shower. <laughs> I wish that you could have a transplant registry and just say, you know what? I would just, I would love, you know, it like, like a diaper party, but let's make it a prograph party. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. I do actually use that analogy too, except for I say, instead of a diaper bag, you have a transplant bag. Ah, um, see? Okay. When you're, when you're coming. And, uh, you know, it is, it's like having a newborn, except for this one can actually talk. <laughs> which I don't know is a good thing or a bad thing because the emotions are still all over the place sometimes. So essentially what Bowen is saying to get back to this particular concept is with the, the nuclear family emotional process, the, the essentially the conclusion of the four stressors, the four quintessential stressors is that the more anxiety one person in the nuclear family takes on, the less the other people have to absorb. But that typically means that there is an imbalance in who takes on that that amount of anxiety and stress and how they function and also what that means for each other's expectations of one another. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily come from a, a malicious place, but sometimes these things within a system, within a family group can become muscle memory where one person is, well, it's it's my job. I've always been the worrier of my siblings. I've always been the more organized of my siblings or I've always been the one to bail out my mom and help pay for the light bill or just any of these. These are just a multitude of examples where there's always been someone to take on the brunt of the responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Well, Kristen, that's a great segue because the fourth concept of (laughs) is a family projection process. And that describes a primary way parents transmit their emotional problems to a child. Mm. So it can impair the functioning of one or more of the children and increase yeah. the vulnerability to clinical symptoms. Really, it's children inherit many types of the problems, as well as the strengths, characteristics through the relationship with their parents. And again, parents can mean different things, but it's kind of thinking about even that, even if it's not your biological parents, um, you know, the impact of that. But the problems that they inherit the most affects their lives are, and I'm just going to read them real quick and we can unpack them, but relationship sensitivities, like heightened need for attention or approval, difficulty dealing with expectations, any patients out there that you've dealt with with that, any 
of your own to mm-hmm. tendency to blame oneself or others, feeling responsible for the happiness of others or that others are responsible for someone's happiness, acting impulsively to relieve the anxiety rather than tolerating the anxiety. Projection process is fairly intense. The child develops stronger relationship sensitivities than its parents. And sensitivities increase the parent person's vulnerability to symptoms by fostering behaviors that escalate chronic anxiety in a relationship system. I mean, it's, it is, it's the, the impact. Have you ever, I mean, going back to being a new parent, right? Mm -hmm. The child can feel sometimes your, your stress. If you're stressed and you're crying and the baby's crying and it's, it's, is it the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or if let's say you have a more, a more enmeshed parent child relationship. And I know that this has been mentioned before in other areas, but your children, your children should be your children, right? Your children shouldn't be your therapist. Mm -hmm. But how many times do we have a parent potentially that dealt with several of these where they had their own relationship sensitivities, they had difficulty dealing with expectations or essentially what these all boil down to is low frustration tolerance or the window of tolerance and that would be an excellent concept for us to unpack in another episode how the window of tolerance can be utilized in transplant and LVAD Mm -hmm. but it's that bandwidth for stressors and how do you widen that bandwidth and this can be a generational problem where parent learned it from grandparent who learned it from grandparent and you go into a generational pattern of behavior but that does usually mean that with the patient or the caregiver, your patient may be the child that bailed everyone out in the family and learned that because they had to be the adult in the room, but now they're chronically ill and the family is really struggling to assume that role of the responsible person in their family because the person who was managing everything responsibly, the, the logistics, making sure the bills were paid, making sure that they they had insurance for the family, all of those logistics, but now they're in the ICU and intubated. Mm-hmm. And because they managed everything, the family just deferred to them and that was the end of it. So navigating that, but also navigating that potentially with members of the family that have an extremely low bandwidth for stress and a very low frustration tolerance. Yeah, you're 100% right. And, you know, we we talk about how this process of transplant and LVAD is, is already stressful. You know, in fact, to the point where CMS requires us to mention the psychosocial risk factors of yeah. increased depression, increased anxiety, caregiver dependence, post-traumatic stress disorder, stress, guilt, feelings of burden, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's something that if you're not, if you don't already have, we're going to give to you. And if you do already have, it's going to be heightened. And so it's so important to know what are, you know, the mental health aspect of the patient, the potential mental health of the family, because that can come out. And, And just even more so when we ask the question about how was your childhood? describe your childhood. And Mm -hmm. again, people may think, well, we don't have time to go into that. What is that really relevant to? But hearing about- Why do you need to know that? Right. But hearing about that can tell us a little bit more. It gives us that glimpse to tell us, you know, 
what what is this going to look like perhaps and even thinking about we have some adults who say okay my parent is going to be my caregiver maybe the parent's not the best caregiver maybe due to their own health reasons but when you try to say that no 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 they'll do it they'll do anything they'll figure out the way to do it for me Mm-hmm. because They'll they do also don't want exactly because they don't want to disappoint that parent they would rather have that caregiver than have to say you can't be my caregiver mm-hmm. and that's where we come into play to say you can't be their caregiver but it comes from potentially this family projection process and i'm going to play devil's advocate for a, a second because i'm sure that there are social workers out there listening to this and go this is all well and good this is why i have student loans right? It's because I learned all of this. Mm-hmm. How do I translate this for my team, my medical team who says, go in there for 15 minutes, find out if they have a care plan. Do you have, they have a care plan. There is a living, breathing human being in their life. Okay, great. Let's put an LVAD in them. Okay, great. Let's transplant them. But you're, a, you're trying in the very little amount of time that your team gives you basically to assess all of this. So where, how do you navigate that type of a conundrum? Hmm. Yeah. And a conundrum it is. It is. But I think that's where it goes back to. These are our social work theories, right? These are our, yeah, basics 101s, but this is why we learn them to bring them back in to say Mm -hmm. to the doctors, to be able to use this as our evidence-based in a sense. Mm -hmm. Sure. There's not the recent studies, which that's a segue into, we should be doing more studies, Mm -hmm. but that's a plug for another time, but, but kind of stating, well, you know, I had a chance to interact with them. You're right. There is a living, breathing person. However, that person's anxiety has caused the patient's anxiety to a degree to where we weren't able to get through the rest of our conversation. We weren't able right. to. So I'd love it if you would go in there and, you know, you have to go in there to do the consent with them, right? <laughs> and so good yeah. luck with the consent. I would give yourself additional time because X, Y, Z. And so I think it's 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 uncomfortable, but it's being able to use that information and, and explain it in that way. You know, sure, that person is there, but we're going to have rehospitalization. Mm-hmm. We're going to have we're going to have a longer hospital stay because it takes two times going over the same information, which is fine. We'll do that. But just know this is why we were suggesting having a different caregiver, having a little mm-hmm. bit more time to to let us instead of just going straight to if there's time going straight to, OK, just put a vat on them right now, put them on the transplant list right now to to allow us more time to facilitate it. And one thing about the LVAD is it has alarms. If the batteries are low, if there are connection issues, if the power goes out, the LVAD can alarm and should alarm. It is very much a safety feature. (laughs) You want that sucker to alarm instead of you just finding out you're out of power and you're on a life-sustaining device with no power. That's not, that sets up for a very, very poor outcome. But when we're assessing these, particularly with LVAD, how do we see them coping with an alarm sounding at two in the morning? Mm -hmm. If going into this, we have a lower bandwidth for stress, a lower frustration tolerance, and and an enmeshment within the family that impacts their, the burden of anxiety that they take on their coping mechanisms. And this one in particular, acting impulsively to relieve the anxiety of the moment rather than tolerating the anxiety and acting thoughtfully. How does that look like with an LVAD when you have alarms sounding at two in the morning Mm -hmm. and challenging those questions because, or challenging with those questions. And this is going to be my soapbox a little bit here, but this is, these are the reasons why we need to have the time and staffing and institutional support 
to do these thorough assessments because it does, it improves outcomes. It mitigates risk. Mm-hmm. It's not to necessarily say, I'm sorry, you, you can't handle stress. You're not an LVAG candidate. Right. I'm sorry. You, you you pay your mom's electricity bill. I'm sorry. You're not a transplant candidate. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying that no. we have the time to have the conversations before we go into surgery so that we can say, this is what we're looking at. It will not get better. It's going to get harder. So let's put the tools in your tool belt necessary. Let's make you successful or get you to a place where you have the best potential for success. Yeah. And I think one of the important things to note there is when you're doing that, you also have to share what your recommendations are. Yes. So I think when you're saying that it's, I want to work with them more by having them come in for visits, or I want to see them go to support group. I want to see, you have to have an intervention plan versus just saying, you know, they're not there yet. I'd like more time or, you know, these are the, this is the situation at hand. I think that's one of the things where we can stand up for ourselves and just, again, bring our, bring the work that we do to another level by saying, this is the risk that's been identified. And here is my, my recommendation, and intervention my plan. intervention plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about generalist social work practice is social work practice has stages of our process. We establish rapport, we introduce ourselves, and we do inform consenting to make sure they know we are going to ask the nosy questions. And this is why we assess the risk factors, but then there's an intervention. We don't stop what we do just on assessment. Right. And I, we also hear you. That's, that's all good and well, but it's not going to work in my program. Mm-hmm. You don't know my doctors, things of that nature. Hear mm-hmm. you, understand, see you. But if you don't try it out, it's not going to change and it's not going to change the first time you try it out. But I also suggest you taking records of that. You know, those ones that you think may not be the best plan. You asked for time. They said, no, Um, you know, following that course as you always would, but following it as far as, okay, how long was their stay? How many rehospitalizations have they had? And maybe that's not because of the psychosocial aspect, but is that a factor in it? Because we can get them to a year, right? We can, we can get them through surgery, but at what point cost impact? And I think that's where we have to make our voices louder and say, hey, I wonder if we could have something to do with that. I wonder if by digging in further, getting involved in their mental health, having those intervention plans, allowing them to try those intervention plans, if maybe that would be a change. So going to the next one, so number five of the eight that we're going over is multi-generational transmission process. So we actually kind of already touched on this. And that's talking essentially about how there's very small differences in the levels of differentiation between parents and their offspring, which can lead over many generations having these traits, having these stressors and or ways that they adapt to stress that may be maladaptive or functional. And so it is generational. That's one of the reasons why we ask when we go over psychiatric history, do you have a family history of psychiatric illness? Does anyone in your nuclear immediate family have a history of psychiatric illness? Because if you have a grandparent who maybe had a mental health diagnosis, did that potentially impact the way your parents were raised, the way that you were raised, and so on and so on? Maybe not, but it is worth assessing again to navigate and mitigate the risk Mm -hmm. and you know i think it's it's the same even number six i mean bowen goes 
a little bit uh, repetitive, but I think because mm-hmm. he's going a little bit deeper into certain ones of his, the emotional cutoff, where people manage their unresolved emotional issues with their family members, their networks by reducing or just completely cutting off emotional contact with them. You know, we talked about that in some of the previous concepts there, but it is, it's that it's easier to just cut it off than to deal with it and Mm -hmm. why it's so important to ask about the relationships between the family members. Okay, who is your daddy and what does he do, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to that, how many family members, how many siblings do you have? How's your relationship with each one of them? Because is it something that eventually you're just gonna cut off? Is it something that could cause more problems after because these individuals are showing up, but you're on prednisone, so you're finally telling Mm -hmm. them what you feel and you're (laughs) saying, you know what, done with you, bye. Forget it, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of looking at it from that that point of just going back to instead of dealing with it, I'm going to just terminate it. And this is a very good point that's brought up here where it says relationships may look better if people cut off to manage them, but the problems are dormant, not resolved. Mm -hmm. And so the thing about these major surgical interventions that completely change your lifestyle and change the dynamics of the family cutting someone off may make things look better or you may have cut someone off recently but then you're sick and what we know about marriages like weddings weddings when babies are born being in the hospital with funerals that is when all the people show up (laughs) and so if you've cut someone off and it you know it's your third cousin or somebody and they show up because they saw on facebook you're in the hospital is the ICU the appropriate setting to navigate that? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where crisis intervention work can really come into play. Mm-hmm. And the staff may be particularly stressed out. Who is this and why are they here? But now we have a little bit more of a background. This was an issue within the family that was not resolved, just lying dormant. Mm-hmm. And a major stressor to the entire family brought it to the surface. Yeah. Well, and I actually had a case like that, again, a couple of times, but I asked about the relationships of the family. Oh, you know, we don't talk. Okay. Is there a situation? Is it something that we may have to to encounter post-transplant and you're not going to be able to tell us, no, don't let that person in? They're like, actually, right. we have had that before. We've had to pull out a restraining order before on that person. So that mm. prompted me to go into the chart and say, do not provide information to so-and-so. Do not allow so-and-so in so that I could put a flag in the account so that we could prevent that. Yeah. And act on the patient's wishes that they probably wouldn't have thought to mention that because they thought, well, I've cut them off. I haven't talked to them in four years, but that's what happens. They will, they not will, but there, it has happened before where people, I, I did also have a similar situation where a couple was estranged from one of the partner's mom. Mom lived in another state. Mom saw on social media that her sweet little baby was in the hospital and sick. This was an adult, by the way, not an actual baby. (laughs) Texas lingo. Yeah, I I do. I just want to make sure to clarify that. Mama hopped on a plane and flew down and said, I'm here to take care of my baby and I'm going to make sure that they get better and I'm here for them. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We haven't talked to you in several years and there's a reason why. And it tur- it was it required some intervention. Mm-hmm. This is why we ask about family dynamics. This is why we ask the additional questions. We're trying to help ourselves and help the staff. And again, make sure that this vulnerable patient is able to focus on their health instead of the stress of it all. And is empowered to make decisions 
from a holistic standpoint, Mm -hmm. not just making decisions solely on the medical impact, but their psychological well-being, their psychosocial well-being, relational, all of that. There's a reason we're at the table. With that being said, number seven of eight, and thank you for those who have bared, bared with us, who stuck around, let's put it that way, sibling position. Okay, can I just like, can I say... I don't really give this one a whole lot of, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's theories out there as sure. you all know, outside of, of Bowen. I mean, you know, you look at Walter Tommen, who's got the foundation for the concept of sibling position. And there's some people that are really enthusiastic about this. You know, they meet you and then they find out what, what sibling position you are They're Oh, you sounds about right. Or I had the other day, someone told me, Oh, you don't seem like a youngest. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons why it's worth knowing because there is the potential for those particular traits and how you want to navigate that. But giving grace that you can't stereotype either that I'm sorry, but it's not a Zodiac sign. You can't, you can't say, oh, well, you're the oldest and you're an Aries. Oh, excuse me. I, I Watch out. It's just, it, you know, sorry that Mercury's in the microwave and that you're the youngest. It's just, uh, here, let me just burn some sage over your sibling position and then we'll feel better. Not to say that there's not perhaps something with it, to be fair, but it's all yes. up for interpretation, right? And those that might be interested, share your thoughts with us. Share your thoughts on sibling position. But I think it's it's worth knowing because it, it there are some where if you are the baby, it's you're gonna have oh you're not gonna have any free time. All my siblings they they dote on me, they take care of me. So you might have that. If you're the oldest, they may always been used to taking care of people. I mean, I think there's it's worth knowing, yeah. as you said. I want to be I want to be respectful, but I I err on the side of you as well. I take it or leave it personally. Personally. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't mean we're just going to have our opinion and say, yeah, I don't really hold much weight to that. So I'm not going to assess for it. Right. I still ask it. Oh, yeah. Same. I still ask for it and I still assess it. And it's because I respect the theory. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, the number eight, last but not least, is societal emotional process. So essentially what this means is that you can take certain components of this entire theory and put it to any group setting. So, you know, your work family, quote unquote, or your societal organizations, let's say if you have a particular, like a religious institution or a social club, that those systems govern, they can govern the entire behavior of the group. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is also looking at the cultural forces too. And so some cultures may handle stress, may handle family dynamics differently. And it, it may not be something that you're used to, but for them, that's something that's normal. And so you also have to be kind of mindful in that regard. It goes into the not having the bias aspect of things. And that's why it's also important to know their culture, their who is their family. You know, sometimes they say, well, I have my church family or I have mm-hmm. my community family, whatever that might be. But knowing that just like family traditions, right, their societal traditions within their society. And then how does that relate into the society of where you're at, where you're working, right? 
Absolutely. And another big trait to this that you see often is the groupthink concept that we mentioned in our previous episode, that a lot of times in organizations or institutions, the group then adopts the same opinion throughout the group when if they were in, you know, essentially if they were individualized, they may not have that same opinion as the group as a whole Mm -hmm. or belief. Very true. And so that's, that's the eight concepts of Bowen, y'all. And it's a lot, but it is why we ask these questions and and why it's important to ask them because you never know what's hiding underneath, right? Mm -hmm. And it is knowing that information can help you in the long run. It may not help you right away. It may not help you in that moment, but it's when things start getting a little interesting, we'll say, Mm -hmm. you have that information to go back to. Oh, let me shed some light on that. Even Mm -hmm. when you're talking to the, the doctors, you're talking to your team, you don't necessarily have to share, well, there's 18 siblings, there are six that, you know, the emotional cutoff of 18 of them, aside from mm-hmm. one, you don't necessarily have to go into it unless it's pertinent. I like to use the words, my nugget is of honorable mention. So if the topic goes that way, someone else says, oh, there was this trait that they discovered during their consult. I'm like, well, of honorable mention, they are blah, blah, blah. So mm. it, you have that information ready to, to when you need to, to know it. And sometimes the rest of the team doesn't need to know it. It's you because you're the one that's going to be helping with that particular situation, that psychosocial impact adjustment, mm-hmm. all of that. You're the one that's going to be following them or your your counterpart for mm-hmm. as long as you're there. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us. And I think that that concludes tonight's episode. I think you're right. <laughs> Thanks for staying with us, friends. We hope to hear from you soon. All right. Bye now. Thank you for listening. This is one of our eligible episodes for CCTSW MCS credit. To receive certificate of listening confirming this credit, please visit our website blog and click the SurveyMonkey link, powered by SurveyMonkey. This will open the post-show test. Just pass the test, be sure to include your name as you would like it to appear in your certificate, as well as an email address for us to send your certificate of listening. Once you've completed this, either myself or Tiffany will review your answers and send your certificate to the email address you provided. Please allow five to seven business days for certification as we are both full-time transplant and MCS social workers. If you did not receive your certificate in seven days, please feel free to send us an email to beatsbysw at gmail.com.